When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Tom Scholt, and I co-host the channel with Kevin Lindsay. On this episode, we speak with Raghav Rajagopalan about his book, Immersive Systemic Knowing, Advancing Systems Thinking Beyond Rational Analysis, out from Springer in 2020. This fascinating book advances systems thinking by introducing a new philosophy of systemic knowing. It argues that there are inescapable limits to rational understanding. Humankind has always depended on extended ways of knowing to complement the rational analytic approach. The book establishes that the application of such methods is fundamental to systemic practice. The author advocates embracing two modes of consciousness, intentionality, which Western philosophy has long recognized, and non-intentional awareness, which Eastern philosophy additionally highlights. The simultaneity of these two modes of consciousness and the variety of knowings they spawn are harnessed for a more holistic, systemic knowing. So without any further ado, let's jump right in to my conversation with Raghav Rajagopalan. Raghav Rajagopalan, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. It's uh, such a pleasure to be uh, talking to you now uh, across great distance. Um, uh, Thank you for joining us all the way from India. It's a real pleasure to have you here on on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. It's uh, it's a pleasure, uh, really. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So um, I guess we'll start with our traditional question, which is to tell us a little bit about what brought you to an engagement with the world of systems. Um, well, uh, you know, in, in terms of systems scholarship, I am an accidental entrant in a way. So I'll come to how that happened a bit later. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the reason I say that up first is uh, I think that the point is that I have not had the benefit of scholarship training in the manner that a graduate degree or a post-graduation in the West would provide. Uh, so in a sense, I believe that has contributed uh, uh, positively, I, uh, you know, I'm free of the conventions of academic thinking and writing, and that has allowed me to, uh, in a way, roam free and uh, even speak heresy. Uh, uh, and I regard that as a strength and contribution of my book. Uh, so there's also a, you know, most delicious irony in the entire creation that is my book, uh, because it's an elaborate theoretical argument for. Uh, valuing practical knowledge or practical knowing, as I like to call it. So so that's uh, about my entrance into system scholarship. 
but uh, what happened was that um, um, uh, almost two decades ago, I encountered Peter Senge, uh, you know, the fifth discipline. And uh, ever since then, that has added a mm-hmm. flavor to the way I think and look at things and, uh, um, you know, deal with my um, uh, consulting practice. So, so that has uh, informed me. And uh, I think that has gone side by side with a certain kind of holistic systemic uh, mindset or attitude that uh, in very many ways and forms permeates you if you, you know, from an Eastern Indian kind of culture. So, so those things have been there for long. Uh, so if I were to track back, you see, it's, it's, it's curious. Uh, I was raised in this uh, enclave of atomic scientists at a nuclear plant, which is 100 miles from civilization. Uh, in fact, interestingly, that plant was Canadian, Canadian designed and built. You know. So uh, anyway, so that... Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. That gave me a phenomenal kind of focus on two things and an oversupply of abundance of these two things. You know, one was science and the other was nature. So the entire population of the Zenclave kind of worshipped scientific temper. You know, no adult would ever talk to a child about anything else. And outside the fence of our little community was bountiful miles of countryside, you know, grassland, mango orchards, forest, mountain and streams to explore. So I was always studying biology in the real, conducting experiments in physics and chemistry. So that, that you know, that was uh, the genesis. Uh, then I graduated in chemistry. I was drawn to the novelty of a new postgraduate course on rural management. And there began a series of very profound encounters which influenced my life thereon. You see, in India... Uh, the poverty-stricken kind of rural areas are a completely different world from the scientists' enclaves. As I began to work with, you know, rural communities, tribal folk, fisher folk, rural artisans, I had to completely unlearn uh, a whole universe of things. And I slowly learned that their form of wisdom is equally profound, you know, uh, as as uh, in our learn, learned world, uh, although it cannot be expressed in English or in scientific terms. So uh, from that point onwards, it is, you know, my intellectual journey has been about this question of getting to the bottom of this oxymoron term, you know, rural management. Uh, so then my mm. career was about, you know, a decade in rural development practice and a subsequent decade in corporate organizational development and learning. Uh, and then I kind of settled down into a, my own little practice in organizational development. Uh, most of my clients were essentially small NGOs, non-government organizations, charities, uh, and a few corporate clients thrown in. But what I was always doing was looking at culture and collective psychology, you know, hidden structures that shape the dynamics of people systems. Now, it just happened that I, uh, in around uh, 2010 or thereabouts, I attended a wedding in London and uh, got to have a telephone conversation with uh, Jennifer Wilby, who headed the Center for Systems Studies at 
the uh, University of Hull in the UK. It was vacation time, so all we could do was a telephonic conversation. Uh, and uh, she kind of casually remarked during that conversation that with my deep understanding of systems, it would be a breeze for me to obtain a PhD. That idea somehow stuck mm. with me. And uh, I went in and transacted that PhD at Hull from 2012 to 2015. And uh, so my book is essentially, you know, what came out of that uh, doctoral study. So that's uh, kind of the genesis of the Excellent. background. Yeah. Excellent. Mm. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Um, and you, um, was Gerald Midgley your supervisor as well? Uh, that's right. Gerald Midgley was my supervisor. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I went into the doctoral program, I was in a sense in my midlife crisis. On the face of it, I had been a rolling stone. Mm. Uh, my career did not add up in an impressive way. You know, I, I traversed um, multifarious universes. I was in rural development at one point and corporate organizational learning at another point and so on. And um, so I had this feeling that I needed to bring together my life's work forcefully. Uh, I had been exercising great care and restraint throughout my working life, not recklessly doing things, you know, uh, not greatly sort of uh, informed by the need to build an impressive career profile, but painstakingly assembling my understanding, mm -hmm. you know, um, of uh, fundamental foundational questions, you know, like the oxymoron of rural, rural management by repeatedly throwing myself into new contexts and adventures. I was living life on the edge, mm -hmm. uh, living life mm -hmm. on the edge all along. And so there was an intimation uh, somehow when I took this plunge into this new adventure of the PhD that there would be something great coming out of this uh, uh, new reckless adventure. Uh, you know, um, I had <laughs> constantly found myself caught between two schizophrenically disconnected worlds here in uh, in my country. I mean, we we call them India and Bharat. So, so the uh, educated urban population is India, but we have this great rural mass, which mm. is uh, not so much anymore now. But looking back three decades ago, two decades ago or rather totally disconnected uh, from this uh, India. And so we call it Bharat, which is the Hindi, the local name, you know, for our country. And it seemed to mm. me that to represent wow. Bharat to India, I had to take the circuitous route of going to the West, since India is totally besotted by the West. <laughs> hmm. So I started off with Gerald Midgley's 2000 book uh, and then his four-volume series and... Uh, uh, you know, the gap kind of intuitively hit me. Uh, it's one of those in inexplicable things. You, uh, you know, you, you have uh, uh, been informed by three or four decades of experience and then you're looking at this uh, uh, new universe of theory and then, uh, you know, um, uh, you're trying to grapple with it. And as you're writing, that writing takes a life of its own and, you know, uh, something comes out of it. Uh, so that's how I tried to get to the root mm -hmm. of the problem. And that's how the sudden insight about striving and abiding. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the four ways of knowing that um, was very, very, very remarkably. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, it was deeply, um, it, it's 
spoke to me. It, it touched a very deep chord in me, the four ways of knowing framework. So willy-nilly, I became a systems philosopher. Yes, as a, thank you. Well, it's... To understand and explicate my own practice. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's not uh, not as uncommon as it might seem for a lot of folks that find um, the engagement with the systems literature in the field after after a, a substantial amount of practice. I think it's a real testament. So folks, uh, I think, would be would benefit by knowing something about Gerald's 2000 book, uh, Systemic Intervention, uh, because your book engages so much with it. But it's also, I think, a real testament to the relationship you must have had with Gerald that you could spend um, so much of your focus in a critique of your supervisor's work um, in a very um, respectful um, critique. But, but nonetheless, I mean, you, you identified gaps in the systems world um, and, and focus uh, in, to, to a large degree on, uh, on the work of your supervisors. So it speaks to a, a real healthy, to me, kind of gen, uh, gen, uh, intellectual um, and deeper than intellectual, um, spiritual generosity between uh, supervisor and supervisee. That uh, because he's, you know, I first found out about your book because of conversations with Gerald, who said to me, knowing my own work, he said, "You must read this book. You need to talk to Raga." So uh, it's a it's a testament to Gerald's uh, spirit as well that uh, uh, that he would be so welcoming of of your your new new mode of thinking about what's missing from the work of of systems practitioners, including himself. So I just wanted to note that. Um, so you've mentioned a gap that came to strike you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what prompted you down this path. Uh, you've already spoken about, you know, the deep uh, wisdom you found in these rural communities outside of the Western scientific rationalism, the deep value that they, that they hold and your desire to bring those sort of into the fold in a way that could fill those missing gaps in systems thinking. So maybe we could sort of hit a, a number of topics with this question in terms of, you know, why this book, why this book now, and kind of an overview of what you mean by this, this term you've coined that is the title of, book, of the book, uh, Immersive Systemic Knowing. Oh, wow. That, that, that's uh, very many questions rolled into one. But I, oh, break it into... I, yeah, I'll take them. Um, <laughs> break it into whatever portions you wish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so first of all, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the question about um, uh, my relationship with Jared. Oh, uh, you know, I must say that, look, I mean, there is not too much to speak about me and my spirit. I've always been a renegade and a rebel and I haven't... Uh, uh, sort of gone by any conventional uh, notions of how to be and what to do, uh, how to act in the world. So I've always been my own sort of uh, tune master, you know, calling my own tune. But um, uh, with Gerald, I must say that, uh, he, you know, very quickly, uh, you know, right from the beginning, um, uh, we hit it off uh, in several ways. And most particularly, uh, uh, what came to me uh, right on, right from the beginning, was the tremendous amount of both personal and intellectual integrity uh, that uh, this person had, that this man had. You know, which which is why I could actually uh, sort of write up a chapter which critiqued his work and uh, uh, send it across to him. And his first, very first reaction. Uh, you know, when we met after I critiqued his uh, book, Systemic Intervention, his 2000 book, uh, was to say that, Raghav, you, you know, you've done something amazing. I mean, this is uh, 
um, uh, brilliant. I am absolutely floored by this. Uh, in 20 years, nobody has ever critiqued my work. And this is the first. So, you know, so that speaks to the spirit of, um, uh, yeah, uh, Gerald. And he's been one of the most outspoken kind of uh, uh, supporters of my work. So, uh, you know, he's, he's been going around telling a lot of people that he sh- uh, they should acquaint themselves with my book and with my work. So, um, uh, yes, I, I mean, I think that uh, to me, uh, you know, uh, like anybody else, he's complex. He has a lot of sides to him. He's, I mean, there are many things, but but then his uh, the level of personal integrity and intellectual integrity is quite remarkable. So that's uh, about Gerald, about his book. Uh, what was very interesting was that it covered a whole canvas, you know, from theory to methods to practice and uh, recast a lot of what, um, you, you know, that group of people out there at Hull over two, three decades have been um, uh, grappling with the whole idea of the critical systems uh, uh, approach. Uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it had gone to the depths of... Uh, that uh, uh, view or that perspective and it had uh, uh, it he's very articulate in his writing so there's a lot of lucidity in his writing so it, you know it's a very eminently readable book which covers a very wide canvas so uh, so that was wonderful but um, you know to me it's just where I came from and my formative experiences and my background as an Indian and everything um, very automatically surfaced this gap that I found there, which, uh, you know, as I have uh, stated in my book and everywhere, that um, it, it, it's, it, uh, you know, critiquing systemic intervention is just an example to show that all of current Western contemporary systems thinking uh, suffers from this same kind of uh, deficit, an epistemic deficit. Uh, so, in a sense, that brings me maybe perhaps to, you know, this book and its content and the uh, titling of it as immersive systemic knowing. So, uh, 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 you know, at one level, you know, the, the, these are three, it's a three word kind of label. Um, uh, and so you can juxtapose it against critical systems thinking. So, you know, uh, where uh, one approach is critical and which means rational thinking, logical, analytical thinking. <coughs> Excuse me. I am saying immersive. And uh, where you are saying systems, I am saying systemic. And where you are saying thinking, I am talking about knowing. So, um, you know, in, in a sense, the, yeah, the idea is to contrast, uh, um, you know, the universe of ideas from which of the perspective from which that approach is drawn with, with the uh, universe of uh, concepts and perspectives from which I have built my uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And so you 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 begin the book with a, a really um, thorough uh, survey of of the movements of uh, of systems thinking and systems science practice a number of interchangeable uh, and overlapping terms to go through uh, you know from the hard systems beginnings to the more interpretivist interventions uh, into the soft systems of uh, of uh, Checkland and and other. Uh, more interpretivist, subjective kind of approaches, and into the critical phase, and you seem to be ushering us into a fourth phase, um, which um, you pointed out that uh, that um, the critical, you know, 
there's been much gained by the critical turn, um, but that it's still within this envelope of a kind of slavish um, connection to rationality and that there are other types of insights and, and of course, a kind of systemic knowing that can be approached through other means from outside of this Western obsession with the rational. And you introduce the idea of two modes of consciousness, which seem to be um, sort of at the, at the, at the bedrock of, of the philosophy you're putting forward. Um, becoming striving, which is um, very much uh, the sort of modus operandi of, of Western rationality. And then another mode that you call being abiding. Can you tell us a little bit about, about those, um, those two concepts and how you came to this, uh, this description of them? Um, yes, I, I, I think in many ways, that's the touchstone, the kernel, the key core sort of takeaway from my book. Um, although there are very many ideas in, in, in my book, but I, I, I would put this as the fulcrum, you know, of, of the, the pivot around which the entire uh, argument is being turned around. Um, you see, uh, you know, coming from the East and coming from India and coming from this uh, fact that, you know, I was schooled in a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, standard Western uh, scientific kind of um, um, worldview, as it were. But then uh, I went into this rural development work and then I had to go through deep de-schooling. Um, so it's, 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 it's all of this that has informed this uh, understanding. And, uh, but what I'm talking about is very simple. And so I've, I've given, uh, pointed out this example in my book. And, you know, we can draw on multiple kind of experiences that all of us have, which is that, you know, so, so if you look at the, uh, uh, the foundational assumption in the Western philosophy um, is, is to say that consciousness, you know, uh, how we acquire knowledge or knowing. Uh, arises from what's called intentionality. So this, the mind reaches out to the external world or to the, you know, whatever reality around us um, with a certain, uh, uh, you know, direction, with a certain purposiveness. There is an intentionality and it is based on that, that uh, whatever is uh, picked up, you know, uh, through our sense organs or whatever is... Uh, um, um, interpreted. Now, uh, sure, I mean, most of us go through our lives with uh, uh, a lot of direction and purpose in our everyday activities. But uh, in all of our lives, there are also moments, there are also, um, uh, you know, situations uh, where we can very comfortably, calmly um, sort of, uh, you know, be with no purpose. I mean, I may be relaxing at the end of the day, listening to my favorite piece of music, whether it's some classical Beethoven or Mozart, or, or whether it's uh, rock or uh, hip hop or whatever it is. Or I might, you know, uh, be spending a moment with uh, uh, my life partner, or I might uh, simply be, you know, um, enchanted by, uh, you know, the view of a sunrise or a sunset at the beach or at, on a holiday. And at those moments, I am not necessarily bringing any purpose from my mind into the world. And yet I am not asleep. I am not, um, you know, passive. I mean, there is alertness, there is awakeness, there is, there is uh, all of that. And yet no directing. 
myself. Now, this this is what I have called the other mode of consciousness, uh, the being abiding mode. And uh, <clears throat> of course, there is a lot of uh, uh, you know effort, uh, especially directed uh, towards you know people uh, in the West uh, who have built up stress and who want to relieve themselves of stress, uh, trying to learn. Uh, meditation and you know uh, centering and relaxation and what have you and they see that as the only uh, sort of reason to be without purpose um, uh, you know without intentionality um, uh, apparently but but if you actually look at it I mean this this mode is also almost always operating it's always available it's it's latent and um, in fact, uh, I believe that uh, you know uh, 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 both both modes can operate at the same time simultaneously. And I see this in a lot of people that at one level, uh, uh, you know, the, the both modes are switched on, uh, you know, uh, and uh, operating all the time. So if you see a very good practitioner uh, of any craft, you know. I mean, it may be a systems interventionist, it may be a surgeon, it may be a musician, it may be a theater um, actor. Um, and uh, if you think about it a little, you will realize that, um, yes, these people, what they bring to their craft with their passion and dedication is this ability to be both informed by a purpose and yet at the same time to be um, um, uh, sort of restrained and very open to the entire experience, to the experience of the moment, uh, and not sort of very narrowly focused uh, and driven only by that purpose. So both modes uh, do operate uh, and can operate. And uh, so that's the argument I'm bringing up. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that this... Um... In, in, in cultivating the being abiding part of our consciousness is what can give us some kind of access to what you're calling the deep intelligence field. So can you say a little bit about the deep intelligence field and its um, teleonomic um, uh, movement towards a kind of wellness and a kind of balance? Um, yeah, that, that's a, a, a difficult uh, area. It's, it's, it's uh... Uh, exploratory kind of territory in a sense, but um, I believe in this very deeply because of a whole a series of experiences I have had, uh, you know, life experiences, uh, and it can't be explained by anything else. Um, now, but, uh, you know, I'm quite sure that a, a lot of people have perhaps had uh, similar experiences and possibly not uh, interpreted it in this fashion. Um, you see, um, if you really look at uh, what are the sources of knowing, you know, how do we really get to know something that's completely new, that's uh, uh, something that uh, we've not known before? Um, very often, uh, you know, we, we, we cannot have a logical explanation for uh, how it has come about. I mean, there are a lot of uh, philosophers of science who have talked about the fact that you know, science is is a preparatory uh, sort of process. Uh, you, all your careful uh, 
setting up of experiments and uh, you know uh, defining of things and uh, laying out the territory and the boundaries of what you're exploring uh, is it, simply preparation to receive an insight but how that insight comes about and where it comes from is is a mystery now uh, i have experienced uh, you know this uh, sort of uh, mysterious access to knowledge to knowing of various sorts uh, in multiple contexts but uh, um, especially over the last two decades it has been very routine in in work that i have uh, been doing in uh, organizational culture and development so uh, you know i i belong to this uh, um, we have an academy of uh, organizational development practice in india called the sumedhas academy and i am a fellow of the sumedhas which means that i have gone through a certain uh, process to be qualified to um, uh, apply this uh, sumedian methodology and this methodology is something that began um you know about three decades ago as as, uh, as an offshoot of you know the group uh, inquiry processes that uh, originated in the west but uh, it soon developed a character of its own uh, which is very indian and um uh, which means that essentially uh, i mean if if you just want to uh, look at the uh, very sort of uh, basic differences uh, uh, we are not aggressive we are not interventionist it's it's a very explore it's a very uh, sort of it's a space where um uh, uh, you the exploration is facilitated only by invitation um you know uh, uh, and so on but but more than that what we have done is we moved on uh, from rational inquiry into the processes you know uh, you know how I, what am i thinking how am i feeling uh, am i are you thinking the same way are you, you know this is how i think about what i feel all of this you know getting into cobwebs and knots uh, we have eschewed that all together and we use modalities like theater and yoga and uh, yogic sleep you know yoga nidra and uh, and a whole lot of other uh, non verbal modalities to uh, deepen this inquiry into the self and into the collective and it works phenomenally well and in that space i have uh, uh, in particular um, tended to use a lot of theater and meditation techniques and routinely uh, in working with theater techniques uh, which are essentially actor preparation techniques that we deploy into this uh, group inquiry space um, a magic happens you know people come to know about things which there is absolutely no explanation for um i uh, i've given several examples in in the, the chapter on methodology in my book but i could just repeat one or two of them uh, here to illustrate what i mean um which is uh, uh, for example you you have uh, been you know taking a set of people through their paces in terms of uh, uh, sort of uh, learning some uh, doing some theater exercises uh, as part of uh, a group uh, inquiry workshop or something and um, you suddenly um, announce a new activity or exercise to them which they have no clue about previously so there's a bunch of 30 people in a large room and uh, you ask them to march about randomly and suddenly freeze wherever they are so you have 30 people 
standing at random locations, looking in random directions. And then you give them a brief, which is that this group has to count from 1 to 30 because there are 30 of them. And there are rules about this. So anybody can kick it off by saying the number 1. Uh, the next person to call off the number two must do it within three seconds. If if you know anybody in the group fails to call out the next successive number in the sequence within three seconds, the you know game is off and you have to roll back to the start. And um, uh, uh, the other uh, rule is that if it just happens that there are two or three people who call out a number simultaneously, once again the game is off and you know you have to roll back to the beginning. Now, in reasonably uh, serious groups, which are, you know, uh, so, uh, working with this uh, entire um, workshop activity uh, with some uh, sincerity, routinely, you find that after three or four um, failed efforts, on the fourth round or the fifth round, the group is actually able to count out from 1 to 30, without a mistake and this is random because nobody knows what number they are going to call out it's not been planned it's not known activity and uh, people just have to attune themselves to the rest of the group and something in their head tells them that this is my moment to call out and they call out and it works from 1 to 30 and there are groups which have been so astonished by this that they've said can we do it again can we have another go at it and they do it and sure enough it works again and it's an entirely random different set of people who have you know called down called out the numbers in a completely different sequence so uh, i mean this is just one example but i mean routinely in hundreds of mm -hmm. uh, spaces in hundreds of uh, places uh, i have come across uh, uh, experiences where people get information access to information which there is no rational logical explanation to and there's a lot of uh, exploration of this in my book there are a lot of examples from a lot of fields and so this is what i call the deep intelligence field and uh, you know essentially uh, somewhere in this book i think i have uh, uh, sort of uh, reproduced a statement from stanislav grof uh, roughly to the effect that uh, you know mm -hmm. if um, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, if you, um, uh, you know, that if you suspend your uh, sort of uh, becoming striving sort of approach mode and you, you can actually just be attentive to the universe around you, uh, then, um, you know, you pick up mm -hmm. this kind of information. So, um, yeah. I, I wish I could uh, use uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful exact that you... words, but uh, yeah, that quote is there in the book somewhere. So, yeah, yeah, I, it's it's really fantastic, and um, you know, one of the reasons that Gerald Midgley told me I must read your book is because my own practice is involving using uh, applied theater uh, as a tool that. Uh, up until the reading of your book, I would say I've been describing my use of form theater as a tool for uh, a kind of systemic analysis. Uh, and I'm now understanding it as a result of the framework you've provided in your book for understanding it actually as a kind as, as more as a form of systemic knowing. 
and you know that you know why would we bother using the theater uh in um rather than just you know talking about about the systemic uh, connection in my case we look at workplace conflict uh mm-hmm. because the experiential uh dimension of of being in an interaction is full of all kinds of other information uh and then the experience of the people watching it and the connections they make so um you've really created a framework certainly for someone like myself as i now start to think of my own work as as about systemic knowing rather than than just systemic analysis or systemic understanding uh is is really really powerful and of course there's meditation practices there's a whole um tradition many traditions of a kind of holistic um um an interconnected um, web inside various practices that you're drawing on Indian practices. Uh, and also there's some discussion of, of course, altered states of consciousness that uh, Groff um, uh, examined, including, you know, uh, experience experiments with LSD and psilocybin. You know, there are those moments of, 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 of sudden insight um, that come. And of course that, that research was abandoned for many years because of uh, a legal sort of crackdown, but is now, is now back in a big way because the kinds of massive therapeutic leaps forward that are, are made possible by, um, either practices or substances or some, uh, ancient combination thereof, um, that opens up, uh, people to this being abiding place, uh, is really quite profound. And uh, living here on the west coast of Canada, um, I won't go into too much detail, but I can just tell you through my own personal experience, right. uh, I know this to be true <laughs> in terms of combinations yeah, yeah, of substances and practices. Yeah, there are so many uh, yeah, go articles, ahead. articles that come up uh, every day on this uh, topic. Yeah, so I'm in a, in a sense dimly aware that there's a lot of exploration around this and around, you know, the things like microdosing and and uh, yeah a whole lot of things <laughs> yes see the the yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the crux of the matter is this you know that if i am grappling with my behavior now the behavior is something that comes from a deeper uh, sort of level inside me um, uh, uh, you know so i might rationally be aware that uh, there is uh, something inadequate about my response or that there is some form of behavior that's not productive enough that I wish to change or so on. But that rational knowing does not necessarily translate into um, a change. Uh, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, the moment you, 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 you're using theta, so of course there are different levels and uh, um, um, modalities of using theta, and I don't go so much into something of the sort of role play. But, but if you were just to consider... Uh, you know, if somebody were, uh, if there was some sort of a role play uh, uh, going on, and if um, you know somebody were trying to uh, uh, deal with a certain situation and enact how they would deal with it, now what happens is that what is being enacted, whether it's authentic or not, is something that is. Absolutely, you know, with no um, uh, um, uncertainty about it, available information to everybody who's present in that space. And it is that, mm-hmm. uh, that touching of that, that authentic, uh, um, uh, you know, connection with oneself 
uh, that that sort of alignment internally um, that um, uh, triggers off the immediate potential for uh, for a transformation or a change you know so uh, this is sort of uh, akin mm-hmm. akin to what i have seen in uh, because i have dabbled in uh, psychotherapeutic uh, psychotherapy practice uh, i had have had some friends who were uh, psychiatrists and psychotherapists and i have sort of worked alongside them and so on and um, you know carl rogers uh, speaks about this so so he says that the only requirement for psychotherapy is to be completely empty within yourself and completely receptive of the other person's uh, you know entirety of being and if you can simply receive the entirety of the other person with no judgment with no other reverberation inside you um, then that person is just healed of that entrapment of whatever uh, she or he is facing and they uh, you know they can just just transform themselves the only requirement for healing is this the psychotherapist actually doesn't have to do any um, intervention of you know counseling and speaking and explaining and you know exhorting or anything of that sort this is what Carl Rogers mm-hmm. had said mm-hmm. yeah. and that's the kind of wonderful and power. I think yeah. a, an important Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I just one of the things I want to draw our listeners' attention to, and please correct me if I if I misstate this in some way, but you know, someone might be asking, okay, well, that's great. We know about mindfulness, we know about meditation, we know about mental health. What, what's this got to do with systems practice? And um, for me, a lot of the answer to that in in your book lies in the notion that this deep intelligence field tends towards balance. That it's that it's a field of interconnectedness. And that it tends towards balance and health. And one of the most powerful things you said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but to me, one of the most powerful things that you say in the book is that um, when one has those kinds of breakthroughs, it is a systemic knowing because one becomes aware not just of how is what I'm thinking, doing, experiencing impact me, but how does it impact the systems in which I am a part, which is a very different kind of awakening and awareness than simply, oh, here's what I need to do for my own goals and my own um, striving. But I'm now aware of myself in this field of interconnectedness um, that, uh, and then, and then I'm receiving an insight that makes me even more aware of all the systems in which I'm connected and how I can move towards a kind of balance with those, you know, the more than human world, etc. You know, um, uh, non-human uh, sentience, all of that kind of thing. Have I, am I am I phrasing that in a way that you would agree with? Uh, yes, I I think uh, you have got that quite uh, correctly. Uh, and but if I might just kind of explain this uh, from a concept that uh, you know uh, people from the West have started picking up, uh, but I don't know how uh, how. Uh, 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 clearly, it has been explained uh, and ac- uh, accessed by everybody. So we have uh, uh, this concept of dharma, you know, uh, uh, in the Indian philosophy, and uh, uh, you know, in Sumedhas, we we work with that idea of dharma. Now, what is uh, what does dharma say? So uh, uh, there are a couple of things that dharma says about this. So for the first is that you know, from a systems perspective. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in your paraphrasing was that we are um, 
parts of many systems, you know, there are nested systems. So I uh, am for myself, but I'm also part of a family and then I'm part of a community of a neighborhood and I'm part of a work system uh, and I'm part of the, you know, neighborhood or city or town that I live in and so on and so forth. And I have um, a variety of um, um, sort of my membership in all these multiple nested systems um, uh, uh, enjoins me to uh, you know uh, have a certain responsibility uh, um, towards all of these. And now the interesting thing is that um, uh, uh, in um, uh, the idea of dharma uh, is that uh, uh, there are a couple of things it says. One is that it says that we can know enough about you know uh, i mean we uh, let's let me put it this way see western thinking would readily admit that there are some things we do not know now it's less ready to accept that there are some things that we cannot know you know but however in the eastern sort of uh, thinking this is mm. fair, quite commonplace but the idea of dharma tells us that we can know enough about these mysterious dimensions in a certain uh, let's say black box way in a certain outside way uh, to decisively act from so that's one paradox now the other uh, sort of key uh, uh, paradox is that dharma also tells us when to withhold from acting or interfering and when to trust the unfolding emergent emerging process so it's, uh, I mean, uh, maybe that's not paradoxical, perhaps, but it's antithetical to the Western approach. So what, what, uh, mm. yeah, so what Dharma says is that inherently, there can be conflict between my uh, requirements or responsibilities uh, towards these multiple levels, but that an attunement to the being abiding mode would, in a sense, creatively resolve that conflict. And uh, so if I approach it with that kind of a mindset, uh, then the you know the conflict would kind of be made to disappear or the choice would be clear enough. And in, in a sense, the dharmic principle is that the choice is always to be uh, in terms of the larger whole, the larger uh, uh, sort of uh, universe of life. So it's, 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 it's not the individual unit that's most important. Uh, but but the larger life sphere, you know, uh, if there, there is a conflict between mm-hmm. any two levels. And that's a very fundamental dharmic principle that's uh, uh, constantly sort of uh, um, uh, repeated in all the mythology and legends and what have you. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I, I, I do, without taking us down back down the rabbit hole of too much rationality, though, I do want to draw us to, and there's so much in this book, it's so rich, and, and we won't have time to cover all of it, but I do want to take us back to some of the... Um, some of the other systems thinkers, though, whose work you have drawn in or some other, other methods um, and ways of thinking um, that have created a bridge, it seems to me, between the becoming striving that a lot of systems work has maybe still been uh, trapped within and these more holistic and reflective um, practices from India. Um, and there's a couple of things you draw in. One of the things you draw on quite a bit in quite extensively developed by Hodgson, who's been on this 
podcast before, so it's one of the reasons I want to touch on it is is the anticipatory present moment. Can you say a little bit about how you've worked with um, Hodgson's anticipatory present moment, which of course he's developed back from Rosen? Um, how that's played a role in in the evolution of your of your of your thinking? Um, uh, yes, uh, you know the the thing is that I was looking at some of these. Um, systems principles that are repeated ad nauseum, you know, holism, uh, inactive cognition. uh, And uh, there is this uh, sort of curious gap that, you know, at the ideas level systems thinkers, uh, uh, you know, espouse all these grand ideas. but, But then when it comes down to actual methodology and practice and technique, um, there is no bridge between those kind of ideas and uh, so, so what do you mean by an active cognition in your practice as a systems uh, practitioner, as a systems interventionist? So I was looking for frameworks which would allow me to sort of build bridges between, you know, um, uh, principles. And so that's why I used Malotra's uh, sort of four lenses idea uh, to unpack holism and also, uh, you know, um, uh, Hodgson's uh, uh, idea there of the uh, strong second order. Um, processes of observation. Uh, so similarly, um, so when I was looking mm-hmm. at, you know, unpacking an active cognition and making it sort of accessible in some fashion, um, uh, this is when the anticipatory present moment uh, kind of offered itself to me as something that might uh, bridge this gap. And uh, uh, so that's the idea that, you know, if, if uh, both these modes of consciousness are operating in our mind, uh, it also means that we are not necessarily only, you know, um, uh, behaving like, um, you know, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, 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 you know, in the moment of uh, cognition and action, it's not simply, you know, referencing memory for past experiences, past um, uh, um, uh, stored knowledge, and then, you know, applying that mechanically. Uh, to the best choice or decision of action in the moment. But it's also the anticipatory side, the side that draws on uh, things that apparently we do not know or that we might not uh, um, immediately link with. And so, uh, you know, uh, Hodgson's um, uh, idea, especially of the three modalities of time which operate simultaneously, you know, so that is the uh, uh, sort of linear clockwork time, that we operate with, but there is also this timeless dimension of knowing that uh, sits with all of us all along, which sort of coincides with the being-abiding mode. And there is also this timely uh, uh, dimension, which which tells you at what point to act or to plunge or to you know uh, 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 take the action. So so I uh, I found all of these. It's 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 an extremely rich uh, conceptual map. Uh, it takes a lot of explaining, but I found that it had all these um, elements in it which uh, were very enriching, but which sort of unpacked the idea of an active cognition in the moment uh, for somebody to look at conceptually. Mm-hmm. And anything you want to say about, uh, you mentioned the four ways of knowing that you bring in work from Malhotra and, and also the Praxis learning cycle. Anything you want to say about, about those uh, frameworks and how they've uh, um, 
the role they've played in uh, this kind of br- amazing bridge building that you've done, which I think is a really quite a remarkable achievement of the book is, is um, uh, for those of us still fairly strongly addicted to rationality, you, you take us there in, in, in a gentle way and in a way that uh, you, 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 you build these bridges in such a beautiful way. Is there anything else you want to say about, about, about those um, particular practices, the, um, the four ways of knowing and the praxis learning cycle? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you're putting in me in a little bit of difficulty because, uh, I, you know, the problem, whether it's the anticipatory present moment or the praxis learning cycle or the four ways of knowing each one of them is, mm. uh, is worthy of a book. I mean, and they, they are, some of them are, uh, written through uh, mm. such large pieces of, so they are very large pieces of conceptual knowledge and with many elements, very rich um, dimensions to them, but uh, uh, so so it, uh, you know I mm. wouldn't know how to sort of explain that the, uh, in a couple of sentences. But then uh, yeah, that's precisely the right. uh, yeah the role that they have played for me is uh, because otherwise you know uh, this whole idea of uh, being abiding or the whole idea of the other modes of consciousness, other uh, ways of knowing, deeper ways of knowing, what is called tacit knowing, all of that. Um, you know, there's always this 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 Oriental Occidental kind of uh, uh, sort of um, a gap that exists uh, between these two worlds. You know, so that's that's all voodoo and that's all uh, sort of uh, mumbo jumbo, uh, and you know, rationality is uh, what makes sense because that is what you can uh, dialogue about and have discourse and you know. But the fact is that if you look at a lot of rich knowledge systems, I mean, if you looked at uh, uh, let's just say uh, um, 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 medicinal system called Ayurveda, which because I have gone into that a little bit. Um, I don't know if at all there is uh, any awareness of Ayurveda in Canada. Uh, it's it's very uh, sort of... Uh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's varied across the world. But, uh, but and if you look at some of these rich mm. knowledge systems, uh, then uh, the point is that if you go down to the fundamental principles of science and uh, you know so if you talk about verifiability if you talk about repeatability uh, then uh, you know many of them actually pass muster but and yet they uh, you know they uh, uh, they sort of fathom more deeper uh, uh, principles about uh, uh, let's say the biochemistry or whatever domain they're working with uh, as compared to uh, some of the uh, conventional scientific inquiry. So so this whole question of, you know, uh, what is science? What is rationality? Those questions I have tried to examine very deeply and I have drawn on some of these models to, um, uh, to assist that inquiry. Mm-hmm. Great. And there's others as well. I mean, there's a wonderful use of, uh, of Bill Torbert's um, um, inquiry. Sorry, action, um, action inquiry. the name is escaping Ac- me at the moment. Action inquiry. Action inquiry. Yes, action inquiry. Yeah. So you're pulling on these traditions that seem to that seem to dare to get right up to the doorstep of the kind of things you're talking about, but still seem to be shackled to needing to explain them in ways that would satisfy the Western rational mind. And so you sort of you you do this wonderful job of taking us to that threshold through those 
those Western practices that have dared to sort of intimate the kinds of things you're talking about. And then you take us right across the threshold into these um, with less concern as to whether or not they quote unquote pass muster in that way. Um, are there any other of the of the of the traditions that um, you've wanted to bring our attention to and to bring into our ways of knowing? Uh, you've mentioned Sumedra and uh, some yoga and some uh, and Ayurveda. Is there any any of the other traditions or things that you you want to bring our attention to as we move to a close in the in the interview? Uh, not not in a specific way. I mean, I have I, I just meant, named these three because I have a certain experience of these. But but if you look at indigenous knowledge systems across the world, and so I have you know I've I've quoted from Balidoma Somi, I've quoted from a whole lot of people. Uh, so uh, so indigenous knowledge systems across the world, a lot of them have uh, have very uh, in, in very deep and sophisticated ways. Uh, you know, uh, worked with this. And then there are authors like David Abram and Amitabh Ghosh who have actually uh, done this bridge building in terms of, you know, moving between these two types of knowledge systems, the uh, the modern rational sensibility and the, um, uh, uh, you know, indigenous sensibilities uh, extremely well. So, so uh, you know, there are, there are traditions all over the world and there are lots of people working with a lot of these things. Um, uh, there are a, a numerous sort of networks of people now. Um, I just yesterday I was reading about I forget the exact name of that precise name of that network, but this uh, I think they they are uh, sort of based in Canada or something, but working with uh, indigenous communities to heal the Indi- trauma in the indigenous communities, um, mixing both uh, you know modern understanding, modern ideas about trauma healing with indigenous uh, rituals and practices. Um, so, so you know, I don't think that one has to look to specific techniques. It's it's more the principle that you know what do we draw from these uh, um, other epistemologies, and uh, you know how do we carefully sort of um, titrate and triangulate between multiple epistemologies in in whatever we are doing. Hmm. And I, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, what's going on here in Canada too, is that there is, uh, a, you know, a long overdue uh, um, increasing uh, recognition of the powerful, powerful ways of knowing of the the First Nations of, of the, the territory that I'm privileged to be uh, mm. tolerated as an uninvited guest on. <laughs> uh, and um, the, the, the efforts need to increase and to continue, but uh, to... to um, to open up to these multiple ways of knowing uh, is definitely a big part of, um, you know, efforts towards reconciliation and uh, and a, and, a, and right relations uh, with with our indigenous people. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because there is such deep value uh, in in wrestling with the wicked problems that the Western rational mind has helped create and seems to be at an absolute loss to be able to solve. So, or to at least tame. Um, so we'll move into our final question, which is, uh, what are you working on now? What's what's next for you? Are are you going to continue in this somewhat scholarly vein, or has this been a sort of a, a detour and then back just deep into the world of practice? Or what are what are your plans moving forward? Uh, no, actually, what has happened is that uh, mm, uh, it's been a difficult reentry into the world after my uh, doctoral study and uh, scholarship work there. 
because um, I found absolutely no takers for uh, what I had assembled back in India. And that was a very deep disappointment. But um, I also got caught up with mm. a, a whole lot of other life cycle issues uh, and uh, things. So, I, you know, uh, some of my work had to sit on the back burner. I, I, I have dropped my consulting practice. It was difficult to uh, go back into that. I had also changed uh, location in India, and uh, yeah, there were life cycle issues. Well, uh, we have elder care for three people, you know, between me and my wife at home now, and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, uh, what has happened is that so uh, you know, and uh, I, I found it difficult to continue my uh, scholarly work uh, in the circumstances uh, uh, in which I find myself. But um, what has been sort of informing me, and I have put together a little framework uh, where I have a diagram, but uh, it needs to be written up about, is that I've looked at this uh, understanding of levels of mind, you know. So, you you know, I found it in Groff, and then I found that, um, you know, it's a refrain amongst many, 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 many people. So there's this uh, psychotherapist in the U.S. called Francis Weller, and he talks about something called the five gates of grief. And uh, he's working with healing communities, you know, uh, uh, healing people in healing communities uh, wherever he goes. And then I find this refrain in the Indian Samkhya philosophy. Uh, That's the the underlying uh, epistemological model that informs yoga. Uh, And I I find this refrain in very many places that there are basically uh, something like five levels of mind. And um, I, I mean, I'm just working on putting that model together right now. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to, uh, greatly look forward to whatever is next for you. I hope that uh, I know that those who continue to encounter you in your work will benefit greatly. And I'm hoping you'll still find some time to, uh, to assist uh, us in the West and everywhere else to continue to access these other ways of knowing that can, uh, can only continue to enrich our uh, our systems practice through this kind of immersive systemic knowing. So thank you very much for joining us. And I, I look forward to uh, hearing from you again soon. Thank you very much, Tom. That, that was really stimulating and uh, lovely conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, where we've been talking to Raghav Rajakopalan about his book, Immersive Systemic Knowing.